Joel Salatin is my next guest. He calls himself Christian, Libertarian, Environmentalist, Capitalist, and Lunatic Farmer. But I call him an economist, philosopher, brilliant marketer, an excellent financial analyst, a gifted public speaker, and a Thomas Jefferson farmer. His parents started Polyface Farm in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia in 1961, and he calls the first 20 years a glorified homestead as his parents worked in town. He graduated in 1982, and he came back full-time to the farm and developed a commercial full-time living there, where today they sell beef, pork, chicken, lamb, eggs, turkey, rabbits, and forestry products. He sells directly to several thousand families and a few restaurants and institutions, both online and off. In this conversation, we are focused on his book, Folks, This Ain't Normal. This conversation, it went fast. It's insightful and entertaining. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. Our visit with Joe Salatin is coming up next. I hope I get this right. Joel Salatin is the author of 12 books. I think they count as correct. A few that stand out are Polyface Micro, another is Pastured Poultry Profits, and another one that I purchased, You Can Farm. And on that one, some of the financial analysis, it's as good as anything you'll read in a manufacturing book. You Can Farm is also selling about 5,000 copies a year, which is that's incredible. When I connected with Joel, I asked him, what book do we talk about? So he suggested, folks, this ain't normal. Great, great pick, because it's not just informative. It flows because of its satire and humor. I learned about Joel because my wife heard him before a sold-out crowd at a speaking event in Missouri. So as I started studying his work, I noticed he does a lot of speaking around the country and beyond the borders. I do. I do. Yeah. I, I probably do um, 30, at least 30, um, uh, you know, conferences a year, different kinds of things, conferences, schools, presentations, college lecture, um, you know, homestead goodness. I'm, I'm doing like just this year, like six, Six homestead uh, homestead conferences. Um, they're just popping up everywhere, and um, and so yeah. And next next week I'll be in uh, uh, Medellin, um, um, Medellin, Colombia, and uh, the next week I'll be in Texas. The next week I'll be in South Carolina. Um, it, it it ebbs and flows. I mean, there, there's sometimes when I have three weeks at home, but I'm I'm gone I'm gone traveling about a third of the time now. It's uh, it's a it's a fast schedule. So when she told me about you, then I go to Amazon and mm-hmm. it's like, oh my gosh, he has like 10, 11 books. So <laughs> now I, I have three Kindle books and I have a physical mm-hmm. book on my hand. It's called You Can Farm. And I'm just hearing a few minutes ago before we hit record, you're selling up to still 5,000 of these a year. What's the best book to get started? If someone wants to read you, What's the mm-hmm. first book they should start? Well, that that you can farm book is probably I call it kind of the foundation book, but um, but I have a couple others. the The last book I did was Polyface Micro, and uh, and it's everything every. So you know, here on the farm, our first basically you know ten to twelve years 
here, it was basically a homestead. And then I came back to the farm full time, wanted to generate a salary. So then it became a commercial and now it's grown to a scale. We have, you know, about 20, 20 salaries. And, but, um, and so when we started, I'd do a, I'd do a speech and everybody say, oh, that's sweet. But you know, how does this scale? Well, then it got to be where I did a speech. Wow, that's amazing. But I've only got 20 acres. How does I, how do I do this small? And so, so I, I watched the whole cycle, you know, up and down. And so the last book was uh, Polyface Micro, um, about how to have livestock on a small scale. In fact, I have a chapter in there on how to have chickens and rabbits in a Manhattan apartment. Uh, because I, I am really a believer in, in, in if you can and if you're interested, you know, don't let your circumstances stop you from participating in the food system and in the farming system. So, uh, so that was done two years ago. It's selling extremely well. We've sold, I don't know what, um, uh, maybe 30,000 of those already. Um, and then, uh, and, and remember, this is a self-published, non-publicized, you know, we, we, we don't do any advertising, don't do anything. And, um, and so now I'm doing the, um, the homestead tsunami, good for country critters and kids. Uh, the, the polyface micro was a how to, this one's going to be a why, but, uh, yeah, the foundation is you can farm. And then if you're a small, you know, trying to get in the polyface micro is the one. And if, and if you're, if you're not sure, I, I, my soul book I call uh, the the sheer ecstasy of being a lunatic farmer. That's the title of of that book, and and uh, um, yeah, I, I I I did that one because so many people say, "Oh, come on, farming's farming, cows are cows, chickens are chickens, eggs are eggs." You know what difference does it make? And and I I did that one with, of course, a lot of satire and humor. You can imagine it with the title, "The Sheer Ecstasy of Being a Lunatic Farmer," and and, and it's the one that I use to help people. Uh, uh, understand the the nuances of how how farming can be different. How you can have pigs without smell. How you can have fences without uh, uh, hurting the deer population. How you can coexist with wildlife and commercial production. That you know that kind of thing is the nuance of of, of that one. Uh, by the way, Joel, I love the satire. It, it's it's great. The humor, uh, at least in the couple of books I've looked at so far. By the way, your satire. There is a ton of intelligence behind the satire and the humor. Uh, can I brag on you just for a little bit? Uh, the book we're focusing on is Folks, This Ain't Normal. And that was a suggestion a few weeks ago. And I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. This guy, this guy sounds like an economist. It's like you, you could go head to head with about any economist in the U.S. And then, and then I'm thinking, wait a minute. And I, by the way, I did... I have read a few chapters of You Can Farm, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, this guy is a brilliant, brilliant marketer. And then I'm thinking, no, wait a minute, uh, that's not all. He's a legal expert, or you have some great ideas on on just legal issues, insurance. Uh, mm-hmm. Bottom line is, you are a savant. <laughs> you, uh, so I, I don't know if you've ever been called worse but I'm calling you. I'm calling you a polymath, a savant. I'm running out of words, but just kudos. And now that I've embarrassed you, let me jump into some of our topics. You're smiling. Thank you. So in this in this book, again, we're focusing on folks. This ain't normal. Loved it. Five stars, and I will give a review on it on Amazon here shortly. I'm breaking this up into three big big pillars. Uh, we're going to talk about farming, food and finances. Again, I'm 
just scratching the surface. Two quick lines out of the book. And I could have plucked out 10 other lines, but number one, as recently as 1946, nearly 50% of all produce grown in America came out of our backyard gardens. As recently as 1946, 50% of produce grown in America came out of our backyard gardens. And the number two, and this may seem kind of random, but in 1910, this is amazing, 88% of America's chickens were in flocks of less than 80 hens. People were eating close to the land. I know this is going to sound, Joel, very, very, uh, it's going to be obvious, self-evident, but farming is not what it used to be compared to 50 years ago. And you use the term mechanical farming. I think you have another term you're using, but we've gone from simple to mechanical where the, I think the focus is on efficiency. It's, it's different today, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is. And, uh, and I don't want anybody listening to think that I'm against technology. I love technology. The, that, that's, that's where people generally run, you know, all, uh, well, okay. So we're going to go back to hog cholera. We're going to go back to Newcastle's disease in chickens. And we're going to go back to, um, you know, to tuberculosis in cows and, and all this stuff. And and that's not the case. There is there is nothing about about um, integrating in, integrating food clo- proximate to where we live, and and scaling back our industrial production that is anti technology, and um, and so I mean we use all the things that we if, if you read Thomas Jefferson's farm book. Uh, which is one of my favorites. It's just amazing to transport yourself back in time and see what he was saying about farming at his time. In fact, one of my most uh, uh, enjoyable uh, lectures I ever did was at the Jeffersonian Society at Monticello, and I did a I, I basically did a presentation on look Tom, look what we've got today, <laughs> and and I took all of his um, all of his frustrations of farming. He wasn't able to control his cows. He couldn't get water to them. Uh, there were all sorts of problems. And today we've got electric fence. We've got, we've got black plastic pipe. We've got water pumps. Um, we've got the coolest technology to be able to solve all these problems. And so what all this cool technology has done is it has enabled us to actually atomize the efficiency of scale so that we can atomize that efficiency down to a democratized, decentralized scale. Uh, in, in a way that is extremely uh, competitive to you know to, to the big operations, and as as we know now, the big operations have their own built-in fragility. We saw that in 2020 when the store shelves went empty. Um, you know, the store shelves weren't going empty here. We weren't having those problems. Mm-hmm. But when you centralize things and you have and you have a, a a rocky shoal to navigate because of a black swan event. You want to be in a speedboat, not an aircraft carrier. And, and that's what we saw at that time. And so what's happened is efficiency has now been replaced with resilience because now we know if you're, if you aren't resilient first, there's nothing to be efficient about. Right. First, you have to survive and then you can be efficient. Is it fair to say, is it fair to say that the quality of our food, maybe we've come more efficient, but is there a correlation to the quality of our food? Is the quality of our food improving or not? 
Uh, no, it's it's going down. Uh, it's going down in in spades. Uh, you know, you you simply cannot. Um, food is fundamentally biological, and I think that's where uh, you started this with. With is 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 farming and food fundamentally mechanical, or is it biological? And we we live in a, a culture right now that views food. In fact, it views health as fundamentally mechanical rather than biological. But you know there is there is a counter there's a countervailing view now gaining traction. You know the whole microbiome discussion, the whole you know autoimmune di- uh, uh, discussion, all those things. But yeah, uh, yeah, the U.S. now leads the world in uh, in non-infectious morbidity, not infectious morbidity like you know like whooping cough and things like that. Uh, but but we lead the world in non-infectious morbidity, heart attacks, cancer, um, you know, leukemia, those kinds of things. And those and those um, incidents or that where we lead the world that way has followed directly. It, 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 it you can overlay those two graphs on our industrial uh, and highly ultra processed food, um, you know, food models. Yeah. Uh, you know, hot pockets and, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, eating foods you can't pronounce. I mean, in folks, this ain't normal I talk about. I think I have a chapter on on uh, unpronounceable food. Yes, and uh, and and I tend to I tend to agree with Michael Pollan that we probably shouldn't eat anything that wasn't available before 1900. And we can all be thankful hot dogs were introduced at the 1890 World's Fair. You know, they had just squeaked in under the under the latch. But you know, look, if you can't make it in your kitchen, if you need if you need a, a half a million dollar or a million dollar uh, laboratory to make the food you're eating, not only is it probably not compatible with your microbiome, uh, which which doesn't know about television and and uh, uh, you know and, and Pfizer and Merck pharmaceuticals, but it also means that you are you are uh, uh, incredibly dependent on a on a um, on a centralized non democratized food system uh, for your sustenance, and that's a vulnerable place to be. My wife and I are in an informal book club with each other. So a few weeks ago, we wrapped up a book, a family who grew up in the Texas panhandle during the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl era. Well, after reading that book, it led me to reading The Grapes of Wrath. And I couldn't get enough. I still wanted to learn more about the Dust Bowl. The reason I bring those three books up is because you provide some great insight. You said something extremely profound. There are two parts of farming. And I have tended, and I grew up in the country, not a farmer, but I grew up in the country. My parents raised cattle. I'd never thought about the second part of farming. You state that the two parts of farming are growing food and caring for the land. This may be a bias, but I get the idea that you are just as focused on the second part as you are the first part. Am I correct in that assumption? Yes, yes. And what a what a great uh, thank you for getting that message. Uh, too often, we've just been told produce, produce, produce. We've got to feed the world. We've got to have cheap food. I mean, there's all sorts of incentives to produce, produce. And we even have, you know, uh, uh, agriculture subsidies, uh, crop insurance. We have all sorts of things for production, production, production. What we don't have is we don't have an equal incentive or interest or care for um, what it does to the land itself. And of course, the whole 
um, Dust Bowl era, the Grapes of Wrath, the whole John Steinbeck uh, premise uh, came because of poor stewardship. And in fact, if you look at the 25, basically 25 civilizations throughout you know human history that we know about, uh, those, all those 25 civilizations um, uh, grew as as they as they leveraged inherent uh, soil wealth developed by wildness, wild wild things uh, uh, by by nature basically, and and they they eventually collapsed as a result of exploiting uh, you could call it raping, but anyway of 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 using up that latent fertility. And so un, unless and until we actually figure out how to close that loop and put back what we've taken, um, and so so that our, our production actually leaves more soil, more air, more water, you know, more commons, uh, you know, we're we're on a you know we're on a trajectory downhill. And 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 America is is on that trajectory. I think it's important to realize that 500 years ago, North America produced more food than it does today. Now, it wasn't all eaten by humans. You know, we had right. we had 200 million beavers that ate more uh, more vegetables than all the humans. We had, um, you know, we had two million wolves that needed 20 pounds of meat a day. Uh, so they took down a whole lot of bison and elk and 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 deer. Uh, but 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 the point is that the landscape was more actually production productive of nutrition. Than it is today. That should give us all pause to realize we can have abundance and uh, and regenerative capacity. We can have both of those, but we can't do it in an in an exploitative uh, conquistador fashion. I love this concept. You call it open door farming. Could you explain that premise and the why? Now I know why after reading the book, but first of all, kudos for doing that. And I'm guessing you've got people all around the U.S. I bet you have people across the globe that come in and check you out. But again, it's open door farming. Where did that come from and what's the why behind it? Yeah, the, the why, it's a great question. The why behind it is there is there are a few things as intimate as what you ingest. I mean, that that's a, I mean, next to the act of marriage, you know, that's <laughs> that's a pretty intimate thing. And so we believe we believe that, uh, and also I'm 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 somewhat libertarian, and so I don't want a bunch of government bureaucrats running all over the place checking things. So I love the concept of a full twenty four seven three sixty five uh, transparency option, so that individuals can come at any time. If somebody this grew out years and years ago when there was a lot of. Um, of mistrust of organics of people like me and oh i'll, I'll bet you're, you you can't be this productive without chemical fertilizer i'll bet you're putting on something at two o'clock in the morning and so as a farm we finally said you know what we're just going to open it up if you want to come at two don't wake me up but if you want to come at two o'clock because you think i'm putting on something or, or or giving the chickens medications or drugs at two o'clock in the morning you just come right on help yourself and enjoy it and we, and 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 it, and it just it just dispelled it dispelled all those things. So there's no no trespassing signs. There's no there's no uh, you know guard towers. No razor wire. No nothing. Uh, and we have we have people routinely who come from around the world. You can see anything anywhere anytime unannounced. 
and they walk through the fields. You know, we got, and of course, some people just shudder. Oh no, the liability, the liability. But 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 the the other side of that liability is. So what are we going to do? Then then give the bureaucracy uh, the the green light to say, okay, you get to decide what decide what we eat or drink. Uh, no, I'll, I'll give it to individuals, and I'll trust individuals to step up to the plate and check out to their to their satisfaction uh, to what we call personally vet uh, what you're what you're eating. I would also say that your approach is completely different from, and I may be saying this incorrectly, CAFOs. Uh, it's short for concentrated animal feeding operations. So is CAFO, is that the right way to say it? Yeah, yeah uh, that's correct. I, mm-hmm. I'm assu- I, do they have open door policies? No, uh, no, my goodness. They've got, they've got great big stop. You no, know, no trespassing. Uh, you've got to walk through sheep dip and put on a hazmat, hazmat suit to go in. I mean, you know, shower in, shower out. I mean, they, they are, they are paranoid of disease. And and they, and and actually, they don't want anybody to see inside there because, as Michael Pollan wrote in uh, in Omnivore's Dilemma, if the average CAFO, as as you if the average CAFO had glass walls, we would have a very different food system in the U.S. The only reason that people tolerate the CAFO is because they can't go visit, they can't see it; it is completely opaque. And so, we want to be in contradistinction to that and be as as transparent as possible. Uh, by the way, I'm going to give a quick shout out to my old milkman, Sam. We called him Sam the Milkman. Uh, we drank his raw milk for about 10 years uh, as our kids. And and same policy. He didn't call, He didn't have a name for it, but anyone could come out and visit his, his dairy facility. There are kids from uh, schools, nearby schools that would come to visit. And uh, it was actually a pretty cool operation. So anyway, I, I, I can't say how cool uh, that is. I want to talk about food for a little bit. And you have a story. Again, you've written so many books. So I hope, hope you can remember the story. It's, it's the, oh, I do. It's, it's, the, it's the story of the polyface burgers that the cat loved. And by the way, I've already told this story to a few people. And it's like, uh, this, this is why we need to support, this is why we need to go to farmer's markets, get, get our burgers there, uh, get yeah. our, get our beef there. But can you share that story? This is awesome. Sure. So we had a, we had a lady, uh, we had a customer lady come and she, you know, she got some ground beef and, and, uh, she said that she, she told me this story that she'd gotten some a couple of weeks earlier and her husband gave her the raspberries for coming out spending more than you have to spend at Kroger's or Costco, you know, cook ground beef, 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 you know, cow, cow, cow. What, what difference does it make? Well, they had a little, like a little Pomeranian dog, you know, these little fluff balls and a Pomeranian dog, um, had gotten to where it would not eat any meat that she brought home from the store. Uh, even though it was a dog and, um, and so, you know, okay, well, the dog doesn't eat it anymore. And uh, they didn't think a whole lot about it. Well, the first time she came and, and got ours, she's fixing fixing it in the kitchen, making meatloaf or burgers or something. The dog comes in. The dog just going crazy. She can't walk. She can't move around the kitchen. He's in between her legs. She says, what's the matter with you, you know? And, and finally, she said, well, what do you, you know, what do you want? So she said, you don't eat meat. You, you know, haven't eaten meat for years. What's your problem? So she dropped a little piece on the floor and the dog jumped over and and just gobbled it up. At that moment, her husband came down the stairs to the kitchen, saw the dog eating the meat, and he said, I have no idea where you got that, but that's the only meat I'm eating from now on. 
Okay. So of course I was, uh, this was a great story, you know? Um, and at the time we didn't have a dog, but we had some cats. And the next week I was scheduled to do, um, uh, to have an exhibit at a local kind of health summit wellness fair. And so I, I, I cooked some burgers from the store, cooked burgers from us, drained the, drained the fat off. And so I had the, the different, you know, so people could actually see the weighed the difference in the weight loss because of all the grease and everything. And anyway, did all that demonstration. So it was, it was a morning in the, in the local park and I come home with these for, with these burgers. Well, I don't want to eat them. They've been out in the sun all morning. What do I do with them? Ah. I know. I'll see if I can repeat the lady with the, the the dog experiment. So we had we had four cats, and so I took two paper plates. I put the four our four burgers on one. I put the four burgers from the store on the other one. Put the two plates out. Called the cats. The cats come running over, and I purposely put the store bought burgers where the cats would come to them first. They sniffed. They went right over them. They came to ours, and all four of them. And I have pictures of this. All four cats then. Uh, crowded around the one plate and consumed the four uh, of our burgers completely. I mean, almost ate the paper plate, and and th- they wouldn't go over and eat the others. And and, and I, I mean, I recorded it so I could have it. And we used that picture for for a lot of years. And it was just for me, it was just the greatest affirmation because our animals don't watch TV. They don't get peer pressure from you know uh, advertisers. And, and so you know they're really connected to what they need. And um, and so I tell customers, look. You know, I can give you a song and dance story uh, and you can look at the look at the science. But you know what? A lot of people trust their dog or cat more than more than scientists anyway. So uh, uh, get some of ours, get some of the other, put it down, see and see what the, see what the animals eat. We've done that with hay. We've done that with other things. Trust the trust the animals, their their sense of, of smell and taste and understanding is um, is unadulterated by, you know, by the media. You bring up another point, and it's a, by the way, it's a great marketing point too. The nutrient density is a lot higher. Absolutely. You're exactly right. In fact, in the book, I have a chart where, uh, where we participated in a study where we sent eggs, where there were 12 of us in the U.S. doing pastured eggs. And of course, you know, we were getting pushback from the, from the, you know, industry. Come on, eggs are eggs are eggs. You, you know, just it, it's an egg. And uh, and our side was saying, no, you know, there's a big difference in eggs. And so we finally participated in this study, sent eggs to a to a, a lab to get a nutrient analysis on it. And I've got the chart in the book, you know, to show where ours were. They, they only analyzed about 12 different. I mean, it, you know, it's expensive to break out too many things, but uh, I'll just give you one folic folic acid. Um, the, the regular USDA uh, label on an egg carton in a, in a store is like 48 micrograms per egg of folic acid. Folic acid is really important for for pregnant ladies. Um, it's a really uh, important uh, uh, essential fatty acid for them. And anyway, um, the, the, in the in the in the USDA label, the official label is forty eight micrograms per egg. Our eggs averaged one thousand thirty eight micrograms per egg. Um, you know, this is not a ten percent difference. This is this is a, 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 you know um, a multiplicative differences. And and so uh, when you're when you're buying food, the same thing is true. You know, we've done with with burgers. How, how much do you lose in grease? You know, uh, if you're losing twenty percent less in grease, then then what more? Can, what can you pay for that? Uh, because you're actually getting actually more edible uh, product. Same thing is true with chicken. Same, you know, it, it, it's true all across the board. And so uh, yeah, so th- this can be th- you can you can actually 
we got onto these kind of simple little tests with our local hospital dietitian. She became a customer and she just started eating our stuff and she realized, oh, this is different. So she started recommending, she started uh, prescribing our food to heart patients when they got released from the hospital. She said, you got to go out here and get this kind of food. And she, she just used her lab, her, 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 just her kitchen there at the hospital to do some basic rudimentary tests. And uh, man, she, we, we we almost had to put her on commission. You know, she was our best advertiser in the world. Uh, but she, she, she just, um, you know, she just did some of these things in, in her own kitchen. It was pretty fabulous. This is a great trivia question, or it could be on Jeopardy, but you state that food travels up to 1500 miles. That's not, that's not a typo or I didn't mess up in what I just said. 1,500 miles. You said something that's very profound. You said that people don't go hungry because of lack of food. It's because of lack of distribution. Yes, it is. The The truth, you know, um, nobody in the world goes hungry because there's not enough food. We have all this, this paranoia today about, oh, there's too many people. We're running out of food. We're all going to starve to death, that sort of thing. But the fact is never, never in the history of the planet have we thrown away more food for spoilage, for being blemished? I mean, it used to be blemished food. If it was a little blemished, you cut it out, you still used it. If it was really blemished, you fed it to the chickens or the pigs. Today, we don't even do that. We landfill it. You know, we, we don't we don't even salvage it. And so for the first time in human history, depending on what, you know, what database you want to search, but for the first time in human history, we're actually throwing away somewhere between 40 and 50% of the edible food that we produce, 40 to 50%. And, and so, uh, so nobody in the world is going hungry because there's not enough food. If they're hungry, it's because of socio-political issues. You know, some warlord won't let a Red Cross truck pass right. the, you know, the Pakistani pass or whatever. I don't, I'm not trying to be ethnic or condescending or anything, but, but um, uh, you know, the, one of the most amazing things that I ever did was I went to the Slow Food Convivium in, um, in, in Italy and um, with Michael Pollan, actually. And while I wasn't speaking, I went to listen to all the as many other presentations that I could. And I made a point of going to all the African presentations from from African countries that are, you know, that supposedly have, uh, you know, famine and, and hunger. And every single one of those presenters said, we've got plenty of rain. We've got plenty of soil, plenty of resources. People are hungry because of our, our messed up uh, politics. Our, our our constant coups, our uh, corruption, our political corruption, and because the West uses us as a dumping ground for salvaged food, and they get they get uh, guilt assuagement by look we help these people um, uh, with a bunch of junk food, and and he said it displaces our own entrepreneurs that are farmer entrepreneurs that would be in the food business and they get displaced when the USA truck comes, when the, you know, when, when the famine relief comes from the West, he said, and every single one of them, I went to every single one, of them, every single one of them said, the best thing that can happen is West get out of our affairs and we'll be just fine. Thank you very much. If it's okay, Joel, I want to ask a question that you actually raise, not you, but, but reporters, uh, journalists is, a local food system, is it realistic? How realistic is a local food system? Yeah, it's one of my favorite questions, and it is 
uh, certainly of the two questions that I get asked all the time, this is the number one one, because at the end of the day, if what I if what I espouse can't feed the world, well, what are we talking about? And number and and then number two, once you get that at, answered, the next question is, okay, if we can, then how can we afford it? You know, that it, it's 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 quantity and price. Those are the two you know issues. And so, um, yeah, I I know I have to uh, answer this quickly. I, I won't drag it way out, but just remember from the from the previous little uh, thing about half the food being. Uh, uh, you know, being spoiled. And and a lot of that is simply because of the distance, of the long distance, the chain of custody between farmer and plate. When food is traveling an average of 1,500 miles from farm to plate, there's a lot of warehousing, a lot of sell-by dates, a, a, a lot of uh, jostling and bouncing and, 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 and problems. I mean, look, look at the dumpster behind any supermarket. Look at all the vegetables and produce and, and bruised things and, and, and torn up stuff. So, um, so th- there's a tremendous amount of of loss just in long distance transportation by by the by the eaters not being proximate. Now, that's one thing. Number two is look the U.S. and I think I say this in the book. The U.S. has about uh, 35 million acres of yards and about 36 million acres housing and feeding recreational horses. That's 71 million acres. That's enough to feed the entire country without a single farm. So so we, we, we do have land. We've got everything from the medians of interstates to the, right. uh, you know, I just flew back from Missouri yesterday. I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the acres and acres of, of land, you know, of grass around an airport, you know, uh, runway. Uh, there's no reason why they have to mow that. That could be squash instead. Right, it could be, right. you know, it could be green beans. Uh, and and so the fact is that we have we have just millions and millions of acres of unused land that could be um, that could be put into production that would not reduce the soil, would not be land um, land exploitive, but would be land actually land massaged. And, uh, and and so, yes, we absolutely can. In fact, the most I'll just close with this most novice, the most novice garden and backyard garden in the world is more productive than the most sophisticated um, uh, industrial monocrop. Because when you've got your backyard garden, you've got multi-speciation, you've got all sorts of neat, uh, you know, things that are happening uh and and you're and you're able to put eyes on it and watch before things get too old or or um or you know go bad and you can harvest them at the at the peak rather than trying to harvest everything at once by a machine so you have some too old some not old enough some in between I mean there's a tremendous amount of wastage within the uh within the industrial food system just a couple of quick points was it your daughter-in-law who suggested medians across the U.S. could be farmed and, and then farmed by prisoners. It's like, sure. what a great idea. Yeah. And then, absolutely. And then number two, I think you brought up Chipotle in your mm. book. In theory or in reality, they could buy local for everything if their processes and systems allowed it. I think the only thing that's highly processed and their restaurants is the uh, the the tortilla. I do mm-hmm. I, again. By the way, I do like Chipotle too, but I think it is highly processed. But in theory, they could probably buy everything local. Correct? 
Yes. Yeah, they, they could. It, now, it would be it, it's a little bit difficult in the northern climates to get, you know, tomatoes right. and peppers out of season. And so that gets to be a little issue. But as you know, in the book, I talk about, uh, you know, as soon as you go into frost zones, every single building should have a solarium on the south side. Right. And and if if every building I'm I'm talking about college campuses, you know, uh, um, you know, condominiums, everything should have a solarium on the south side, and we could grow all of our lettuce and our uh, maybe not tomatoes and peppers, but certainly our our winter hardy stuff, you know, things like lettuces and kale and and, and broccoli and cabbage and things could be grown uh, year round, and um and, and then and then you know a little more sophisticated, you can grow you know tomatoes and, and peppers and things uh, year round, but yeah, um, that can be done, and um, and and we should be we should absolutely be doing that. Let's talk about money. Let's talk about finances. I've run into people. In fact, I have a, a very dear friend who is one of the greatest experts ever that I've ever met in the insurance industry. I'm, I'm not trying to uh, irk you in any kind of way because you have a chapter about insurance, liability insurance, but he is phenomenal as an insurance consultant, well, he's now a full-time organic farmer. So him and a few others, I know it's like, I want to do this. I want to start farming. Uh, first of all, you better be reading. I'd say read you, <laughs> study you, go visit you. But it does sound cool, but it's not just that easy. I mean, you are no. a professional. In my opinion, farmers are professionals period. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and farmers need to be uh, generalists as well. Generalists, uh, eclectic, you know, you got to fix things. You got to, you, know, you got to know a little bit about welding. You got to know a little about construction. Uh, obviously the soil, you know, mechanics, uh, different things. So you got to be a little bit of a generalist, but no, if it were easy, more people would do it. But I will tell you this, that um, that that farming has gotten a bad name financially and psychologically because in our culture we have marginalized farmers to the edges of of society. You know, uh, if you're a, if you're a, a C minus to a F plus student, you can go be a farmer. But if you're an A B student, you better go. You know, become a, a white collar something. And um, and uh, you know, we we've kind of marginalized that. And so, so society doesn't, you know, the, 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 the intellectual uh, agrarian, the Jefferson, the Jeffersonian ideal of the intellectual agrarian um, has kind of gone by the wayside, unfortunately, in our country. So a lot of people um, uh, are, 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 are put off from farming simply psychologically, you know, emotionally, because, well, nobody will respect me, you know, nobody respect farmers are, you know, old hillbilly rednecks, right? And uh, and so there, there's no respect there and people want to be respectful. So they go into I.T. and professions and things like that. Other professions. The other thing is that, yeah, it, it, it is um, you have to be a generalist and and you've got to be able to um, uh, to solve your problems, grow, sell, uh, process. You know, you got to wear those those different kinds of hats and. Um, and that's one of the beauties of what our kind of farming does with mobile infrastructure, with uh, permaculture stacking, uh, synergistic, symbiotic, multi-speciation, uh, because we can now we can now produce an income off a of small acreage, uh, and you and it doesn't require the capital investment that a regular like a CAFO 
or right. uh, a single, you know, a, a single crop like a wheat farm, corn farm. Uh, if you're going to just get your income from one or two things, they've got there's got to be a whole lot of them. And if you're selling into the commodity, it's all about a race to the bottom for who can be the cheap, lowest cost producer and produce more volume. So because you're operating at low margins, the way we look at it, we're going to wear those middleman hats, you know, the distributor, the the processor, the marketer, wear those notorious middleman hats. And that gets us off of that scale rat race and instead moves us into actually integrating ourselves into the food system as basically as opposed to basically being uh, raw materials suppliers to a value added uh, industry. Two quick points to interject. I just want to say that here in Columbia, Missouri, we have an incredible farmer's market. I would love to take the collective IQ. I believe it's as high, if not higher than any other profession uh, that we can name or think about. Uh, these guys are highly, highly intelligent people. Uh, yeah. Number two, uh, you mentioned briefly in your book, spend selling. And you mentioned the person who's making $50,000 a year just on a, a teeny, tiny, small plot. So again, this is this can be highly profitable, but I do know that education is important. I uh, can't just go into it lightly. Uh, one more thing, actually a couple of more things. You mentioned that your children, and I just, you, you've got several high fives uh, as I was reading this part. You said that your kids, uh, before they hit 20 or once they reached 20, both of them had already had amassed $20,000 in their bank accounts. First of all, that's parenting. Number one, that that stems from mom and dad. But mm-hmm. the fact that these kids worked and there was money to be made on the farm. I don't really have a question other than just say, sir, well done. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, we've got two of the greatest kids in the world. But remember that 20, that was 20 years ago. So to, in today's dollars, that would be whatever, you know, 50, right. $60,000. Right. And, and I make the point in the book that that didn't come from allowances. We never played an allowance. Uh, we think that that um, that there are things that you do because you're human. Nobody gets paid for cleaning the toilets. Nobody gets paid for washing the dishes. And so there are, th- there, there are things that you do in the household just because you're a member of the human race. But if you're going to actually, you know, uh, uh, with savvy, go out and generate an enterprise, uh, then we believe that that's yours. And so we let the kids keep all the money they they, um, you know, they produce uh you know daniel had his rabbits rachel had her um she had her her uh, pound cake and zucchini bread and and um in, in my book in my new book if i could just just for 30 seconds please, just riff on this, in my new book uh homestead tsunami which is which is a description of the why of homesteading um why is this capturing the, the imaginations of, of americans right now uh, one of them is our 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 adolescent problem. Our suicide is way high. Uh, we've never our fentanyl. You know, look if you if you are a bright eyed, bushy tailed, entrepreneurial, excited, visionary person, um, you're not going to commit suicide, and, and you're not going to uh, play around with fentanyl. Okay. Well, how do you how do you develop that level of self worth of, of of that I'm valuable? 
Will you do it not by being patted on the head by people saying, you're a good boy, you're a good girl. No, you do it by being successful at meaningful projects, successful at meaningful tasks. And 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 a homestead um, provides a, a, a million opportunities to be successful at meaningful tasks. And all three of those words are important. Uh, you can be successful at being, you know, being uh, playing video games, but that's not a meaningful task. Right. And so it, it doesn't it doesn't engender the same amount of of self-affirmation and self-worth that being successful at, you know, gathering eggs or or growing tomatoes or or making jams and jellies uh, does. And, and so um, our, our kids really participated in that. And um, and they've just, of course, Daniel runs the farm now. And uh, and yeah, we're we're really, uh, really proud of, of their trajectories, what they did. And, um, you know, everybody, everybody wants them. And so if you want kids that everybody wants, uh, and, and I mean that once, you know, in a good way, in a good way, I don't mean to exploit. I mean, they want them because I want you on my team. Right. I mean, that's what we want. We, we want the world to knock on the door of our kids and say, we want you on our team. Uh, then what we need to do is is provide a, a habitat that allows them to successfully complete meaningful tasks. I had no idea this was going to come up in the book. Uh, this is a topic I hate, hate, hate. You bring up estate taxes, and this is a very, very family-friendly show. This is the one topic where I could probably use a bad word or two. I think estate taxes are ridiculous, and I'm just trying. I'm trying to be professional. Um, <laughs> and and by the way, I, I do have a rural background, uh-huh. and so when you have a family farmer, a family, a farm that's been in the two generations, three generations, and it passes on, well, the land keeps going up. Which I think you're going to hit this in a minute. The land goes up for no reason at all you have no control over it. All of a sudden you've got to pay estate taxes and, and yes, yes, Mr. And Mrs. Financial advisor and estate planning and on and on. Again, you're paying a lot of money to take care of those things, but estate taxes are ridiculous. And I applaud you for bringing this up. You're going through this right now where you, you received the family farm as well, when you share the numbers, like, wow, that was low, and now it's well over a million, and mm-hmm. and you still have a, a parent still living, and it's like, this is, this, again, this is crazy. Estate taxes, someone in Capitol Hill needs to be enlightened about, you've got to change this. I have a couple of ideas, by the way, but uh-huh. take the yeah. mic, please. Yeah, sure. Well, look, de- death death should not be a taxable event. Right. You know, death is a big enough deal in, in and of itself. It shouldn't be a taxable event. And I know people say, well, why why should kids uh, be able to just you know enjoy the the largesse of uh, the unearned largesse of their parents? And uh, and and you know, I I haven't been in a in a deep, a deep enough discussion on this issue to know whether I would have a different view. Uh, with land versus like if all your wealth is in stocks and bonds, okay, or or in in uh, certificate D- CDs, all right. Um, so I, I don't want to get off on that rabbit trail. But as a farmer, I can tell you that all of our wealth, all of our wealth, 
is tied up in the land right. and the land continues to escalate and we don't get any more rain. We don't get any more sunshine. We don't get any more earthworms or, or, or organic matter uh, uh, automatically. It, 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 it is completely outside of our control that this land continues to escalate in value. And so suddenly, you know, here, you, you know, you, you have this family legacy of land. And, and one of the problems is that in our Western culture, we have commoditized land. And here I almost turn into a Native American. Okay, uh, the, the land is is beyond beyond that. I remember when uh, my dad my dad was a uh, he was a, a tax accountant, and and um, uh, you know his his accounting practice paid for the farm. Okay, initially, uh, paid for the land, paid for the land initially, and so I got a running start. And and um, you know the, the the fact is that. During this time, as that land has increased, none of the it, it has been completely outside of our control. That there, there uh, we have not speculated. We have not, you know, uh, um, you know, used it for, you know, to to trade and buy and sell. Uh, it, it's in our family. And when we, when Dad and I, when we started Polyface. You know, our, our farm, we came up with the name. Dad was wanting to make it Salatin Incorporated. Well, I don't want to be Salatin. I said, Dad, Dad, this is way bigger than our family. This is this is bigger than us. There might be a day when a Salatin isn't running this. But the mission and the vision of stewardship, of taking this little piece of property and stewarding it, building soil, hydrating the landscape, increasing the pollinators, increasing the wildlife, increasing the product, all of that stuff. That is bigger than our family, even. And I said, no, it shouldn't be our family. It should be something, you know, generic, so that that stewardship can go forward. Now, are there farmers that I think are not good stewards? Absolutely, many, many, many of them. But, but uh, deep down, even the ones that I would say are not good stewards of their land, they still they might be multi generation. They have they have deep roots there, deep anchors there. And and to put them in a position where the farm has to be sold or broken up in order to in order to hang on to it is 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 unconscionable. It's just unconscionable that 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 a that a hundred year a family farm property that's been stewarded for a hundred years by a family, even if it wasn't the best, should be broken up and and lost because society decides. Well, it went up in value, so you got to pay cash. You've got to be cat cash for something that can't be cashed out. Uh, is 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 uh, unconscionable. My compromise is if the land stays in the family, and there has to be an and, if it's going to continue to be farmed, it's deferred. It's deferred until the next year, or until yeah. you sell it. Then you've got liquidity. So when you have a liquidity event, then you pay it. Yes. But otherwise, yes. it's just deferred, and it should be that simple. And, yes, and I, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't that? That's exactly the right the right compromise. Yeah, I, yeah. If 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 kids inherit a you know a five million dollar tract of land and they turn around before dad's and mom's uh, cold in their grave and sell it, um, you know I, I, that that that's a fair compromise. Yes. Now I'm still like you, Joel. I don't like death taxes. I'm just saying. But here is a yes. compromise idea. Yes, yes absolutely. Uh, the, the, this is, I loved every minute of this. And and no <laughs> wonder Mrs. G loved getting to hear you and her friends. It was just the talk 
amongst several of us. So I, again, I can't thank you enough. Plug the heck out of anything you want, like like you need help <laughs> unplugging yourself. But whatever you want to talk about, what do you want to plug, sir? Uh, well, a couple of things I'll plug. I mean, the first thing I'll plug, of course, is is if you like what you heard and you want to drill down on it, you know, buy our books. And you can get them on Amazon, but you can also get them directly from us at Polyface Farms. We actually make more money if you buy them directly from us than Amazon. So, you know, we'll we 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 ship them out, you know, uh every every week. And um and we're glad to glad to service you that way. The other thing is that we do ship food nationwide. If you want uh um uh you know pork snack sticks beef snack sticks for your kiddos lunch boxes that don't have any high dextrose sugar or any of that junk in it um you know we'll send them to you in a jiffy you know jiffy bag uh and you're up and running we send we we ship every tuesday across the country uh chicken beef pork turkey uh, and um and one of the favorite things that we hear back is somebody you know gets it from us for a few months and man i didn't know this kind of food existed but i've been looking around it made me look around in my local area hey i found a farmer locally i'm sorry to leave you but i found my local guy we love that we love that and and so if we can be a, a pump primer if we can be a pump primer in your investment in your health and in the health of the land uh and and in and in uh defunding defunding the corporatization, industrialization, and, and, and fragilization. I don't think that's a word, but I'm going to use it. Use the it. fragilization of food, then, you know, here's an investment you can make. Uh, we do a lot of gatherings at our farm, inform- infotainment gatherings, and uh, have a lot of uh, events going on. We do uh, farm tours, and um, and we just be delighted, delighted to have you uh, visit us virtually on our website, polyfacefarms.com. Uh, and or come and come and enjoy uh, one of our events and certainly enjoy some of our food in your kitchen. I apologize. I bought my book so far on Amazon, your new book. I promise I will buy it through your website. Uh, <laughs> hey, real quickly, we ask every guest, we don't let you off the hook. I think you're a reader. I think it's fair to say you are a reader. Uh, do you have some favorite books? Do you have some that you like to share that, that you Obviously, I know you like the farming books, ag, anything ag related. But uh, what are some of your favorites? Oh well, I mean, oh, I've got a lot of a lot of favorites, but it's a couple of ones that I've that I've really enjoyed reading here just lately. Yes, I am a voracious reader. One is um, right here on my desk still. It's um, "Daring Greatly," da- "Daring Greatly" by uh, Brene Brown, and uh, that. That book gives me chill bumps. I still don't know what to do with it. It's so profound that I've still got it here because I I, I want to leverage it for my for my farm team, and it's so it's so good. I'm not sure where to start, but I, I'll start. I'll, I'll figure it out. I just read a manuscript to do a um, a cover. A lot of my reading now is uh, forwards for for books for manuscripts as well, and and I just did one for. Uh, there's going to be a reprint of uh, the George Washington Carver. Uh, biography that was done in 1943. It is, it is probably the best biography I've ever written. It is fabulous. Um, uh, George Washington Carver, and then, uh, and then on the on the plane last uh, yesterday on the plane coming home from Missouri, I read um, I read Blind Spot. You're probably familiar with Blind Spot, and uh, it's 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 a very interesting book as well. 
So, um, yeah, we, you know, we, we, as you can see behind me, I have quite a, a bookshelf yes. and on our website, I have my, I have what I like, what I like that's, that's, um, you know, uh, iconic in my life, you know, uh, things like, uh, an agriculture Testament by Sir Albert Howard and, um, and, uh, you know, altars of unhewn stone by Wes Jackson. Uh, these are just iconic. And of course, you know, Zig Ziglar meet you at the top, you know, Dale Garnegie, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, of course, anything, you know, purple cow, anything from, you know, uh, um, Seth Godin and those guys up. So I, I, I read very broadly. I read stuff sometimes that I don't agree with that. I know I won't agree with, but I like to do that in order to help broaden my, you know, broaden my understanding. So yeah. Lots of good stuff out there, and those are just some that I'm, I'm doing here lately. I would pay good money to hear you, and his, his name escapes when we've had him on the show. One of my favorite books I read two years ago was The Secret Life of Groceries. The Secret Life mm. of Groceries. It is a great book. It just To me, it came out of nowhere, uh, and each chapter can stand on its own, but w- I would have loved to have asked you about shrimp, because <laughs> there's a chapter on shrimp that... <laughs> I will never oh. eat, I will never eat shrimp again after reading yeah. that chapter. Yeah. And and so anyway, well Joe, this has been such a pleasure. You are incredible. I I'm going to pr- be promoting you for a long 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 time and and just the continued best for every single thing you're doing. I call me a fan and I'm now an ambassador uh, for you. Yes. So thank, thank you. you sir. Yeah, thank you. You're very gracious, very kind and um I hope uh, I hope we connect again. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. In addition to Joel's books, there's a movie out on Polyface Farms. And here are a few of the audio clips from the trailer. This place is what needs to be the new normal. This farm was the armpit of the community. It was the most abused, worn out, gullied, rock pile. What makes this farm so different? I think it's all of the symbiotic relationships that mimic nature. You've got cows that are eating grass, you've got chickens that follow them and scratch through their manure eating bugs, then you've got turkeys following them eating bugs. It's immediately clear that this is different than other farms. Um, the, the sheer quantity of life on this place. We are not anti-technology. What we like is technology that allows us to better biomimic the patterns. People across the world are copying what's going on here and this farm is breeding a whole new kind of entrepreneur. What we've seen here is the future face of our food system, how we grow it, buy it and eat it. And it really could be the thing that saves us. This repopulating the land with farmers who build community is extremely gratifying. You need people on these farms to run them and, and do them successful. And I think Joel's way is, uh, is going to be the future. You get the symbiosis of all those nests being in proximity. Now you've got a bunch of songbirds that are really uh, singing some hallelujahs, and that's exciting. 
If you want to learn more about the movie, just head over to polyfaces.com. His name is Joel Salatin. If you want to learn more about him and his farming methods he teaches, I'd start with thelunaticfarmer.com. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.